generation dwells here. And then we moving by the pack, so we moving them. And even if you don't, then you do, cause you cool with them. They be like, I only went to school with them. Welcome to Color Correction, a GCC podcast about race and faith from the perspective of a black girl, an Asian guy, and a white guy too. I'm Andrew, uh, Asian male. Uh, I'm straight. Uh, he, him, his pronouns. Um, I'm Chris. Um, I use he, him pronouns. Um, I identify as straight, and I'm white. And I'm Bethany. I identify as a black woman. Um, I'm straight, and I use she, her pronouns. So what we like to do is start off by talking about some stuff that we kind of wish we had mentioned or got wrong in previous episodes. So we started episode nine um, talking about Brant Jean, who is the younger brother of Botham Jean that was killed in Texas um, by a police officer in his home. Um, and that officer's name is Amber Geiger. And that kind of started our conversation about fetishizing forgiveness. Um, but this week, uh, Brant Jean received an award from, I believe, some sort of police commission for uh, hugging Amber Geiger in court. And I thought his quote about that moment um, was really wise and is important for us to go back to um, because it kind of summarizes our entire two-part conversation about fetishizing forgiveness. And he should be the one to sum up that conversation. Absolutely. Um, So Brant John said, he ultimately decided to accept the the award, he said, um, so he could deliver a message to those in attendance. He appreciated the opportunity to console Geiger because she needed forgiveness and he needed to be, and this is in quotations, free of the burden of unforgiveness. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that I think that speaks to what we were talking about last time as forgiveness is self-care on the part of the forgiver. Yes. Yeah. He had some compelling words for the people who offered him the chance to speak and who um, awarded him. Um, He expresses ambivalence about speaking to this particular group of people, which was um, a widely police audience. Mm -hmm. He he used that opportunity to compel them to think about what they're doing and to proceed into this next round of policing with caution. Yeah. Yeah, Um, I agree. I think he really took the opportunity he was given and used it wisely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He really took back ownership of his story. And I wish more people had been talking about this. Absolutely. um, This week, because lots of shit was being talked a couple of months ago. So cool. Let's get into actual corrections. Um, So I actually don't have a correction, but I have kind of an addendum. So I came up with the name of um, the last two episodes, Fetishizing Forgiveness. And I wanted to give credit to um, one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter, uh, Roxane Gay. She is a brilliant um, writer and professor. She has an amazing book called uh, Bad Feminist. But I did not remember that I got the language fetishization of forgiveness from Roxanne Gay. So I wanted to give her credit for that. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Roxanne. Yeah. I actually wanted to mention something a few episodes ago that I I forgot to do when we were talking about the Tulsa massacre of 1921. We're going back. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I I wanted to bring up um, the Chinese massacre of 1871. Mm So it was in L.A., and it's described as either the largest or one of the largest mass lynchings in American history, where 20 Chinese people were strung up by a mob, wow. and they basically burned down L.A. Chinatown. Wow. Yeah. So 
again, these these so-called race riots or massacres that are so prevalent in American history aren't taught a lot. And it's interesting to me. I'm also thinking about James Cone's The Cross and the Lynching Tree mm -hmm. and how he talks about how in America, you know, the, the weapon of terror that white supremacy has used against black people has been lynching. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me the idea of um, that – Chinese people were also victims of lynching because yeah, that's how. Yeah, I've never heard this before. Yeah, me either. Yeah, because that's how historically in America, like a like a demonic curse, that's how white supremacy continues to express itself mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. against all kinds of persons of color. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, just uh, oh, another. Maybe this will be our race riot corner, race <laughs> massacre of the episode of the week. I don't know. Um, <laughs> that's a terrible I know. segment Why name. Why did you get us to laugh corner. at that, by the way? At the beginning of every episode, we talk about an unknown race riot yeah. where white people I'm also trying us. to avoid calling them race riots because that language, it's like, they're massacres. Like, yeah. which race is rioting exactly? Yeah. You call them massacre, you call them genocide. Yeah. Um, but there is a section that we do want to make a recurring thing, and that's uh, a, a section where you speak up. Uh, tentatively called speak up <laughs> i like how your vo voice got louder for it yeah uh I, there should be like if we were radio djs we'd like play uh mow, 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 speak up <laughs> thank you <laughs> that, that's just gonna be the clip from now on chris i hope you i hope you're proud of that um so we got an email from a listener uh and I want to read part of it because I thought it was important. Uh, so this was specifically in response to the episode that we did about reform versus revolution. Episode 8. Episode 8, yeah. So uh, the email reads in part, I thought the reform versus revolution episode was a good idea, but it was a bummer you had no speakers who really identified with the revolution. I think this led to a lack of perspective. There wasn't much even talked about revolution besides the Amish and some incident where Puritans locked people in cages. That, those sounds like the most lame revolutions ever. Um, I wanted to share some of this perspective with you because it has been something I studied and tried to participate in at times in my life. Um, the main argument I hear against the reform-only strategy for change is that the changes it makes are incredibly fragile and easy to repeal once the movement that pushed for them is not as strong because reform doesn't really alter the dynamics of power, the power dynamics in a society. It depends a lot on the goodwill of the powerful, which is generally a bad look. In fact, one could see the last 50 years of American history as a kind of showcase for what happens when you rely only on reforms without a consistent militant group to apply pressure to power. Um, so uh, the, re the, the listener goes on and also specifies that they don't think this is necessarily good because revolutions are pretty horrible to live through and that their direction can't be controlled like reforms can. But I think he does bring a pretty important perspective here. This idea of political revolution mm -hmm. has been a tool for people, for oppressed people repeatedly in the past to enact real change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now – when we were talking to Bryant, something we probably should have touched upon more is the history of pacifism in the denomination that we're connected, in the movement that we're connected with. Mm -hmm. um, so our revolutions are always going to be kind of lame. Arguably. I mean, right now, I, I just... I don't know. I mean, like, uh, so the, the bus boycott is a good example of, like, a nonviolent but super revolutionary We're talking movement. about the Montgomery bus boycott. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In the 60s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. not, not connected with, with us. So who knows? Maybe maybe like maybe the Mennonite versions are all really lame, but there are good examples of ones that aren't. <laughs> yeah, I'm. It's funny also because right now uh, our chop is happening in the space right outside, and probably one of the most famous members of of this church community, Shane Claiborne, is out there selling stuff that is made from assault rifles hammered into farm implements. 
Um, but I mean, I do want to acknowledge that like it's a complicated issue. It yeah. sure is. And I also feel weird sometimes telling uh, oppressed people that you're not allowed to use violence, but apparently the police can or the state can. Yeah. You know, right. that doesn't feel good either. Yeah. So I, there are, there's nuance to this, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So you may have noticed that we started the episode by identifying our sexual orientations, uh, which I think is important for this episode because we're kind of going to talk about sex stuff, relationships. I love your immediate discomfort. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kicking in already. I'm regretting this already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's preface this by saying uh, we're all straight. So mm-hmm. there are perspectives that we can't offer. And we're hoping to come back to this subject with people who can offer other perspectives than just ours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We are... And just ours as a straight perspective, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there are way more sexual identities than straight. Um, there are also way more gender identities than uh, cis. We all identify as the um, genders that we were assigned at birth. So we definitely want to bring somebody back that's practicing their faith. Um, and also identifies within the LGBTQIA plus community mm-hmm. um, to broaden and expand those perspectives. Yeah. Or even somebody who's not practicing their faith. I mean. Oh, we... yeah, that's true. So I figured a good entryway into talking about this would be for us to talk about our ideas of dating and relationships as we were growing up. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And how those changed as we got older. I grew up as an evangelical, but also I had immigrant parents. And I have a very specific Asian perspective. Whereas I know you, Chris, mm-hmm. you're white and you grew up as an evangelical. Right. And, I mean, Bethany, you you also grew up in the, in the kind of the church culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Anyone want to want to start us off by talking about how they thought about this stuff growing up? No. Not really. <laughs> well, let's start off by this. Did your parents ever have a convert like did your parents ever sit down with you and talk to you about this no did anybody's parents ever talk? i've have never met anybody whose parents sat down and had a sex talk with them ever my sex talk and i talked to you guys about this on monday Mm -hmm. my sex talk was if anybody asks you to do something that sounds like duck but starts with an f say no. <laughs> that was my Amazing. sex talk. <laughs> all right, all right. My sex talk was this. 1998, Titanic comes out. <laughs> all right, let's set this scene. I'm ready for it. 1998, 1998 Titanic, Titanic comes out. I'm 10 years old. I go see Titanic. Rose and Jack are like, are, are go in the car. And I'm like, what's going on here? And my parents are like, don't worry about it. Nice. <laughs> that was it. They never had the sex talk with me. <laughs> I had to learn it from my friends at school. Which is a terrible way to learn about uh, sex. Yeah, yeah. How about you, Chris? Um, to my father's credit, um, there was a sex talk. Like, really? Yeah, no, and like... This is, I am 29 year, years old. I yeah. have never had a friend whose parents actually yeah, talked to them about sex. Yeah, and it was my sex. dad. Mm-hmm. How cool is that? Yeah. Like, we, like he actually he actually did, like, <laughs> run through the, like like... The penis goes into the vagina, like he Dang. went th- like into the mechanics. Whoa. You know, wow, it was like wow. and it, like I feel like Crash Bandicoot. Whoa, Dad! I know you're listening, and I'm just I'm remembering you being incredibly uncomfortable, <laughs> but like hero move, right? Like he actually wow. did it. Yeah. So he Super initiated awkward. it yeah. without you yes. saying you saw something yes. on TV. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Um. So that's cool. I mean. 
I I think that I think that's a good baseline. I I will say I didn't have a whole lot of follow up to that conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, like I but I did at least get the like the the mechanics, like how how sex work works and like where babies come from. Mm-hmm. Like I got that from my dad. Interesting. And I think I was like I think I was 13 or 14 when we okay. had to talk. Okay, that yeah. makes sense. Like it was like totally in the like like appropriate age range. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, what you said about the mechanics, remind, about the mechanics, what you said about the mechanics of sex reminded <laughs> me, My this is kind of, and this is kind of on brand for them. What they did for me was like, why don't you look that up in the encyclopedia? So I did. And I was like, oh, okay, there's like this biological stuff about a sperm and an egg, mm, I guess. Mm-hmm. And that was like, that was oh, it. okay, that's how it works. Yeah. Um, and the reason that I say it's kind of on brand for my parents is because I'm realizing <laughs> that either learning it from my friends or looking it up in Encarta 95, Microsoft 1995 encyclopedia Encarta. software, um, or, uh, or just reading or listening to whatever <laughs> – we're listening to focus on the family on the radio mm, or mm-hmm. reading whatever books were lying around or were What's in focus the church on the library. Um, focus on the family is, oh man, Mr. Colorado Springs over here. Well, Why don't you tell us what focus you, on the family is? Yeah. You know, I worked there. Do you guys know that about me? No. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've never heard of it. Yeah. Um, and I actually, um, both my parents worked there as well. Um, I had a, I had a short, Stint at Focus on the Family. Focus on the Family is um, a, a Christian organization started by um, a psychologist, James Dobson, to um, address issues of um, the family. And you can't see my air quotes when I do that, but they're there. <laughs> um, but it's a it, it's a very conservative approach to family life and and the issues of um, families in America. Focus on the Family had radio shows that talked about. Um, issues um, of families, but always with a very Christian and always with a very conservative Christian perspective. Let's Which means straight, married. Straight, married. The, so that kind of environment, like, again, my parents never sat me down and had conversations about this with me. Mm-hmm. But it was just in the air, literally in the air, in the radio. Like, yeah. we, we would be driving around and I'd be listening to this stuff mm-hmm. that was emphasizing straight, conservative, no premarital sex purity culture yeah. mm-hmm. kind of sexuality mm-hmm. and that really got drilled into me as yeah. I was growing up and I mean I think we're going to get into this a little bit but like but really presented it as biblical mm-hmm. like the bible said to have a promise ring type of thing yeah that's what it felt like yeah exactly which hopefully we we explore a little bit and I'm like I am not bringing any level of expertise into this but like that's not all the bible says I don't think we bring levels of expertise into anything no we're just bringing, we're just our bringing ourselves yeah. <laughs> yeah. right yeah. yeah so you worked at focus on the family I did can you relate to what I'm talking about yeah yeah well and like my my entry into focus on the family was through the through that channel of of evangelicalism like mm-hmm. that's the those are the waters I swam and that's the that's the Christianity that I was largely a part of mm-hmm. from the start mm-hmm. we're groups that were mostly aligned with with this way of thinking so um, focus on the family made sense and I, I understood what they were about going into that um, I should say I was like 20 did you date no in high school no I didn't 
Um, none of us dated in none high school. Dated. We're a bunch wow. of squares. I know. And that's For why real. we have a totally. podcast in totally. our 30s. <laughs> yeah. I'm 40, by the way. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, right. Like, waiting until you're married to have sex. Mm-hmm. Um, Which I was never into. What do you mean by that? I just always thought that that was like a load of crap to put on such young people that didn't even understand sex. Yeah. Like, I think I've been like a wild feminist or womanist for a long time because I can remember the United Methodist Church that I was going to in middle school having this event in which um, all the girls were together and I think all the boys were together in a separate room and they gave us like this um, half pledge sheet that was a pledge that we were supposed to sign to save ourselves until marriage. And I distinctly remember sitting in the back of Mm. the sanctuary with my arms folded because I was like, I don't know if I can make that pledge. I'm 12. (laughs) Like, I don't even really know what sex is. Like, do I really want to commit to never doing that thing? Uh What if I never get married? Like, what if I'm like 46 when I get married? I'm not doing that shit. Wow, you were were sort of a visionary at 12 years old. That's pretty advanced. (laughs) I refused to sign it. I thought it was so ridiculous. And I remember feeling angry about that. That's amazing. Do you think you held on to that attitude as you were growing up? In what ways? What do you mean? At least for me, that kind of attitude toward like sex. Mm-hmm. That was your that was the religion when you were a teenager mm-hmm. in the nineties. Yep. All about like what you're what what you're not allowed to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or else. Yeah. You're you're uh, you're screwed. You screwed it up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. You're like used goods. Yeah. Yeah. That language was used a lot. Which. Especially for girls. Well, that's yeah. what I was going to say. That I, as men, not to the same extent. No. Okay. But I mean, that's kind of what I'm. Why I'm curious because you, you're talking about rejecting those attitudes at 12. Mm-hmm. But did that kind of perspective get still get pushed on you as you were growing up? And how was what was your reaction to it? Yeah, I think it did, and I think I started to buy into it a little bit more. Mm. Um, as I got older, I think part of my rejection of that was just being like a angsty 12, 13 prepubescent type of girl situation. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to do anything that adults were asking me. Um, and I always went to a church youth group. So a lot, a lot of talk about sex happens in church youth groups because you're in high school yeah, sure. and that's something that's coming up. So I can remember thinking, that sex was a big deal. Mm. But I I don't think I ever bought into the idea of saving yourself until marriage. Mm. But you didn't date in high school. But I didn't date in high school because I was a square and nobody liked me. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I would have dated in high okay. school. I actually thought that because of Saved by the Bell and other teen shows, uh-huh. I thought that everybody dated in high school. And then all through high school, like, I never, I never went on one date. Wow. I think, so... At 17, I got a boyfriend on a Thursday. I did not like him that much, but everybody else had a boyfriend. So I was like, I need a boyfriend too. Mm. Um, <laughs> and then Friday, I hung out with him. My my really good friend at the time set me up with him. So yeah. we talked on the phone, became boyfriend and girlfriend on the phone on Thursday. Uh-huh. Nice. Met up with him on Friday at my friend's house. Uh-huh. Hung out with him on Saturday and walked around my block. I'm from a very small town in Delaware. Walked around my block. He insisted on holding my hand. And I can remember being like, I do not want to hold this person's hand. Um, And by that happened Friday afternoon, by Saturday evening, my mom stormed into my room 
accusing me of doing all types of things. <laughs> was this guy whose hand I didn't even oh, want to no. hold and demanded that I call him and break up with him immediately. Wow. Okay. So How many I of his fingers did you touch with your fingers? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what happened? <laughs> so I was like, I had to act like, oh my God, you're ruining my life. But really in my head, I was like, yes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. Oh my God. It was such a relief to get to break up with him. So I called him and um, I broke up with him. And I was like, my parents said I can't have a boyfriend, so I can't date you. Uh-huh. So sorry, Damien. It's been 12 years. <laughs> I've always missed you. <laughs> I totally have not always missed him. I was going to say, you are single now. Do you want to put something back out there in the world? (laughs) But yeah, that was dating for me. So like my parents had initially said like you can date at 16. But then like at 17, I had a boyfriend for like less than three days. And I was forced Uh to break up with him. I Mm -hmm. think because there were these assumptions that like. If my teenager is dating a guy, she's going to be having sex with him and I need to shut this down. Yeah. So although I never really fully bought into it, it was definitely the underlying water that I swam in. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the, the virginity thing for me was less about like being ruined. As I'm thinking about it, I, I think there was actually like there was something chivalrous in it for me. Like Really? Yeah. Like Say more about that. I'm interested yeah. in what that means. Yeah. I. So I as I'm thinking about it, I... I don't think I came away with the message that, like, if I lost my virginity, I was ruined. But it did mean that, like, that's not something I was bringing to this, like, pristine relationship that I was entering you... with my my virgin wife. Interesting. Oh, okay. And that was kind of the – that was kind of what they, they taught to boys. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Similarly to you, Bethany, I think I, – I probably took the stuff more seriously as I grew. Mm-hmm. And for me, one of the one of the big one of the influential books that I read was Joshua Harris's "I Kiss Dating Goodbye." And again, my parents never told me to do this, <laughs> you know. But those sort of things feel like the thing you should do, yeah, right? It was just there, like I found the book somewhere, mm-hmm. and I or my mom gave it to me, and she was like, "What do you think about this?" And I read it, and I was like, "Oh, I guess I agree with this because it's a, you know, I just <clears throat> it was in the." It was the water that I swam yeah. in, in mm-hmm. as part of the evangelical culture, and I internalized and that it. That book mm-hmm. was huge. It mm-hmm. was huge. So, was it huge in the evangelical white community? Is that why it missed me? Yes. Okay. It was definitely big. In what year? Late nineties. Ninety eight. Ninety seven. Ninety seven. Looking at the wiki page. Okay. Yeah. okay. And by the time I started going to a white church, I think it was two thousand two. Joshua Harris wrote that book when he was twenty years old. Wow. How did he know I about know. dating and sex? So let's talk about well, the premise of the book is uh, that he doesn't date anymore. Am I remembering this right? He, or he's against the idea of dating? Yes. And 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 so the um, the alternative that he's presenting is, is an old idea mm-hmm. um, and actually something you could probably get a sense of if you just watch some 50s sitcoms. Um, and the idea is courtship. It's about like this – explicit right um march toward marriage yeah like we're not just we're not just like fooling with each other's emotions by mm-hmm. like having this like thing that's going to end we are mm-hmm. we are committing from the start to moving on this path toward becoming husband and wife husband and wife mm-hmm. yeah i yeah i remember two things from that book one 
he really emphasized the idea of group dates. I I guess I went on group dates, hmm. dates where you're there for a certain person, but there are, are a bunch of other people around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is once you get to know a person well enough in this group date, you move into basically a courtship phase where you're specifically trying to see if you're going to get married or not. Yeah. Um, and I do remember it involves like part of it is like it's it's kind of paternalistic. He it was like there is like asking the person's father if it's okay to court mm-hmm. them. But yeah, I read that book and I and I absorbed it. And uh, do you see it affecting the way you navigate your marriage now? I think by the time that I started dating the person that I'm now married to, I had moved away from from that. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, but how about you, Chris? How long did it take you to? That's a really good question. I I actually, I think, in being married now, I've I, that's actually where I've like worked really hard and and like have felt a lot of pain and and still feel like I'm shedding this kind of stuff. Like I don't entirely feel like I've let it go. I see the mm-hmm. foolishness of it, mm-hmm. but like. It is a way I've lived most of my life, mm-hmm. and it's and it's an identity that's deep in me. Mm. Um, so it has definitely taken me longer to like work out of these ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, they're certainly not ideas going forward that I would encourage anybody to um, even try on. Yeah, you know? because really, the only end result of all of these ideas and theologies is shame. Yeah, it yeah. generates an incredible amount of shame. Yeah. yeah. Do either of you see any benefit from having grown up in this environment? No. I wish there had been more information about, like, the seriousness of sex, right? Like, Mm. sex is a really serious thing, and that's a reasonable conversation to have with teenagers and young adults. Yeah. But, like I said, I feel like most of this ideology centered around shaming me out of doing something. Yeah. And, like, I still feel a lot of shame around sex and relationships. Like, Mm. I just got out of a a three-and-a-half-year relationship where I lived with my partner and, like, just knew we were going to marry each other. Mm -hmm. That's a big reason why we live together. So the fact that we've broken up now, I feel a lot of shame about that. Like, everybody knows. Your living together didn't result in in marriage specifically? Yeah. That, like, oh, everybody knows that Mm -hmm. I've had sex because I was living with my partner and now we're not together yeah. and I'm like damaged goods because of that. Yeah. There's a, I feel like this, yeah. a tremendous amount of shame behind that. Yeah. And like I didn't get married until I was 36. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Like in my, in my late thirties, like, and I was still holding on to some of this idea of like <laughs> getting together with like a virgin. Mm. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, At like, 36? Well, I mean like, I I think I like I I was just like, make, I was like I was like making heart concessions like she won't be a virgin anymore and that I guess that'll be okay. <laughs> that is so That's interesting. interesting. I'm That's really surprised by that because so, you're uh, only forty, so this was only four years ago. It was yeah. I mean, I've been married for seven years, six years. Um, so it, Wait. right, a little, a little, <laughs> but like, but that's not much of a difference. I'm not good right. at math, but that's not much of a difference. <laughs> that doesn't quite work. Right. Yeah, but okay. that's still not that long ago. We're not talking about 10 We're not or talking 15 about years that ago, ago. Yeah. or in your early 20s I, I get what something. you're saying. How yeah. did it feel to be in your mid-30s and having not – and being alone? Yeah. I I don't know. I mean I think for the most part I, I've been okay in, in my being single. Mm-hmm. Like, like being single is one thing. Like I think the thing that is, has, is really complicated for me 
is sex mm-hmm. and, and sexuality. Mm-hmm. Like I was perfectly comfortable living as a single person. Like that, I didn't feel like a whole, I didn't feel a whole lot of like shame or regret. Like I, I've, I've had a really full life relationally. Mm-hmm. Um, but inside of that have felt a lot of really conflicting emotions around sex mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that has made it hard for me to enter into relationship mm-hmm. um, and has had and is and has made a lot of relationships I've had with women really complicated mm-hmm. because you didn't want to have sex because you didn't want sex to be part of that relationship at that point I, I didn't know how uh-huh. I didn't mm-hmm. know I like and I like I didn't know if it was okay. I think yeah. is the I think is the main thing that I struggled with. Sure. And so Sex like it almost never feels okay when you grow up with these ideas. And so like I, there are certainly probably a number of people who are even listening to this who can attest to like how hard of a person I was to read in mm-hmm. these in these complicated friendships that were like intimate but we weren't dating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did that a lot. Yeah. Why do you think you let it get to that point? Oh, I, I, because I wanted that intimacy. Yeah. Of course. I'm asking um, you that question, but I'm also asking it because I can't completely relate to what yeah, you're saying. Yeah. I like. In terms I feel of, like I don't understand what you're saying. So did you just have like hookup relationships? No, Is that what you mean no, by intimacy? No, there wasn't. There wasn't any. You had really intimate friendships who yeah. went, and it confused them. Yes. Oh, yeah. okay. I wouldn't Thank be able you. to. No, I'm, I'm glad you that. cleared that okay. up. No, I yeah, understand that's... what you're saying because I've, yeah. I've had some of the same experiences. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I just I, I I understand where you're coming from, and I think I think the thing that I wish that this attitude had implanted on me as I was growing up was that women are human beings. Yeah, mm. I didn't internalize that, mm-hmm. and I think the 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 masculine part, which is still part of the purity culture, the kind of toxic masculinity, the kind of idea that uh, that men are aggressive and women have to be protected or something like that. Yeah. That women are fundamentally different creatures. I think that still got, I still absorbed that even if Mm -hmm. I wasn't trying to sleep with them. Mm -hmm. You know, I still believe that women were somehow fundamentally different. So I didn't think carefully about what it meant when I was having these really intimate friendships. Yeah. And how that was hurtful or damaging or Mm -hmm. how I was coming across. Right, Mm -hmm. right. You thought you were this being like, straightforward awesome dude like having like good friendships with with women yeah but it's all very consumeristic like this woman exists to pleasure me and it may not be sexually but at least emotionally mm-hmm. i'm yeah, being stimulated a, sure and pleasured by this woman like look at this like, person I'm that's giving me this something. attention yeah. yes and i'm gonna have a hard time putting this episode out i'll be honest with you i don't know how much of this i'm gonna include well i think you should include uh, all of it andrew what I, the hell yeah, is wrong right. with we're, you? we're working something out pretty good here i know this, it, is this is good is therapy. stuff. Yeah. Andrew, okay, you better keep this in. <laughs> right. Andrew's always right. telling us that something <laughs> tough that recently happens to us will be good radio. Yeah. So he has some goddamn nerve. You're right. I'm not going to be hypocritical. It, t- it, it took some self-reflection in order to get myself out of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I think, all jokes aside, I think that's really good for you to name that now. Mm-hmm. Because that's something that somebody that listens to us or even somebody that listens to us will have a conversation with another guy about. Mm -hmm. Because I've experienced that on the receiving end as a woman. Hmm. Um, So that's, yeah, that's really interesting that you can name it that way. So I Mm -hmm. actually think that's really brave. I actually, I think maybe that's one of the things that like marriage has 
has helped me with. It's probably been good for me and the relationships I have with women that I'm married. Mm -hmm. And that, like, the intimacy I'm having is with one woman. Mm -hmm. And, like, that that boundary has been a lot clearer to me as Mm -hmm. a married man. Mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons, uh, at least for me, that kind of... uh, that kind of attention was so validating for, mm-hmm. for me personally was uh, probably because of my race. Mm-hmm. I think in addition to the to the other stuff that I'm talking about regarding growing up yeah. in the evangelical world, I also internalized a lot of – I mean well, we've talked about this before, but I internalized a lot of white supremacy in mm-hmm. the sense that I was the, – the fact that I was an Asian man made me feel less than. Mm-hmm. So the idea that anyone would give me attention at all felt good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I think to some extent, the re- one of the reasons that I didn't date in high school and before college was because I internal- I had somehow internalized this idea that I couldn't be found attractive. Mm-hmm. It wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. It was just that the obstacles were too high, so I shouldn't try. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, that was part of my thinking too. And is that just physically or sexually? I mean – it's uh, those are intertwined i think okay. hmm. uh yeah i think you're right yeah just the idea that like i couldn't that a- asian men aren't attractive mm-hmm. like i didn't uh that was that was a mess like I, if you were to ask me back then i don't think i could have articulated what i'm articulating now mm-hmm. but looking back i definitely think that attitude hmm. colored a lot of my actions mm-hmm. where were you receiving that um well, you never see asian men as leading men they're never the love interest mm-hmm. in stories yeah whether it's said, ex- racism is so sinister that it never really actually has to be said. And it's almost very rarely said. Mm-hmm. But it's implied everywhere. But I wonder, like, and I'm serious, like, for you personally, like, what, do you have examples? I mean, besides the fact that that Asian Asians in general are kind of absent from, from culture. Mm-hmm. It is the yeah, absence. Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. And I mean, I can point to things like uh, how, for a while, Long Duck Dong in Sixteen Candles, the John Hughes movie, mm-hmm. was like the main Asian representation. Yeah. Um, I've tried to watch Breakfast at Tiffany's, and I can't sit through it. Mm-mm. No, no, that's a, like Mickey Rooney. Yeah, I can't as deal an with Asian it. man. No, that sucks. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen Asian people kiss in a movie, except for Ex- the recent ones Crazy that Rich came Asians. out. Yeah. Yeah, and that's... do they kiss in Mulan? Yeah, Mulan was kind of revolutionary because Shang was sexy. I think we've oh, talked about this. Before. I love me some Shang. <laughs> yeah. I love Shang. Yeah. It's BD Wong that oh, is the voice of Shang. I did not know that. I just recently because I was I watch Mulan way more than I should. Like oh. if I have a free Saturday, I'm like, let me watch Mulan so I can see Shang. Yeah. But I looked it up recently and I was like, oh, BD Wong, that's my boy. That's I amazing. love him. Yeah, that's, that's his voice. Oh, did not know that. It's so weird because I I think because I was homeschooled, mm-hmm. there were certain stereotypes that I am totally unaware of. Mm. So like it being weird that women are pastors, I had no idea that it was weird for women to be pastors because all of the pastors in my life were women. Mm. And I did not know until I was like 25, I saw like a BuzzFeed video that there was a stereotype that Asian men were unattractive. Because I always thought that Asian people in general were really beautiful. Hmm. So when I saw this BuzzFeed video, I was like, BuzzFeed's just always reaching 
pretending that that's a stereotype. And then I looked it up and I was like, oh, this is really real. <laughs> and when I started thinking yeah. about it, I was like, oh, Asian men are treated like they're just absent of sexuality mm-hmm. completely. But for some reason, I've there. those are two stereotypes that like I just totally missed. And, and like on the other side of that, that coin, Asian women are over-sexualized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and... Uh, it's hard to have that perspective as not an Asian woman. Yeah, I, yeah. I definitely no want to revisit yeah. this when we can have the perspective yeah, we can. of an Asian woman. Like, but I know there is a certain kind of subculture among Asian men that are really, really resentful of this, as if sexual attractiveness is privilege, when really it's kind of, it, it's oppressive. And I think if you if you have a conversation with an Asian woman about how they avoid people that are trying to fetishize them... Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting conversation, and mm-hmm. I do want to have that conversation on yeah. this podcast at some point. Um, what else did I want to say about that? Oh, yeah. I, I, and I wanted to add this. Like, sometimes with my cousins. This is always a funny start to a story. I sometimes like, with so my sometimes cousins. So sometimes with my cousins. So we'd be walking around, and there'd be, like, an Asian guy with a white woman. <laughs> and we'd be like, nice. Go, man. <laughs> but you know what? That's fucked up. <laughs> that's white supremacy. Yeah. That like, how does that feel for an Asian woman or for a woman of color? It's th- that attitude. It sucks. Yeah, I can remember my cousin saying, "If it, if it ain't white, it ain't right." Okay. Yeah, I still can hear that from some of my cousins. Yeah. Talking about white women. Right. Yeah. But I think white supremacy oftentimes produces misogyny, mater- paternalism. And other ugly things mm-hmm. in minority men because it's a grasp for value in some capacity. Mm-hmm. I think because we so oftentimes use white supremacy as our model for power without deconstructing how much it harms other people, I think that oftentimes minority men will grasp at things that resemble white supremacy mm. to feel power. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying, although it sucks, like it makes a lot of sense to me because of white supremacy. Yeah, totally. If and, that's I, your standard for power. Yeah. So one time uh, me and Chris were like the only people in a room, I think, or not Chris, me and Andrew were the only people in a room. I think Chris had just left to get pizza for our hub meetings. <laughs> and I literally turned to Andrew and said, so now that all the white people are gone. <laughs> Do you have family members that only date white people? Or, like, <laughs> how many of your family members are Wait. married to or in relationships with yeah. white people mm-hmm. only? But, again, I think it's a power grasp. Mm-hmm. Like, whiteness is the example of power. Whiteness is the example or the standard for beauty and, like, mm. all that stuff. So if you have a white person standing next to you at a wedding and that's your boo... Mm-hmm. It looks like you have a little bit more power. I think that's what's happening for a lot of people. Yeah, mm. that makes a lot of sense. Do you have a personal angle to this? Okay. Um, so it's interesting that we have so many family members that have dated outside of their race, but particularly have mm-hmm. really fetishized whiteness or connected with white partners. Have it, Have either of you guys dated outside of your race or dated, um, well, Andrew, have you dated a white woman? Yes, once. <laughs> You said it so quickly. All right, were you triggered? <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> he was just ready. He's been thinking yes. about this all week. One time, uh, <laughs> we went on a date to Reading Terminal Market, and she said, my parents wouldn't approve of this. And I said, what, like dating? She was like, no. And I was like, 
Oh. <laughs> oh. Man, that's really painful. Whoa. That's so weird. So Why did you take it to Reading Terminal Market to tell you that? I know, man. What the hell? <laughs> How how soon did that come up? I don't know about immediately, but pretty oh, soon after. Come immediately. on, that's so weird. Yeah, white people and <laughs> yeah, white people and our like bodies and our race and our sexuality is such a weird mm-hmm. thing sometimes. Mm-hmm. Because like as a so I've never dated outside of my race. Uh, I went on one date with a white guy. That's not true. Um. But he was a lot older than me. Yeah. And he said that he couldn't take me to meet his friends because they. I was 21 and he was 33. And um, so he was significantly uh-huh. older than me. He was like a teacher. Um, and he was like, honestly, my friends would riddle me if like <laughs> I brought uh-huh. a 21-year-old to parties and stuff like that. He was like, I didn't realize you were as young as you were when I asked you for your number. Like, we can't date. So he never mentioned anything about my race. Mm. But in my experience in, like, my small town growing up in Delaware, um, I really experienced white men treating my sexuality like it was a joke that kind of belonged to them. Hmm. So, like, let me come up behind you and grab your hips at the bar. Hmm. Or, like, as soon as you walk in, let me shove a drink in your hand and ask you to dance. Like, my sexuality was something that should... Entertain them. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even to the point that their girlfriends would be there kind of egging them on. You know what I mean? Like, neither one of them would take my sexuality or my body seriously. It was just like, oh, this pretty little dark-skinned girl came in, particularly because I was dark-skinned. I feel like like my girlfriends that are lighter than me um, didn't really deal with this as much. Um, And I think it's funny. Malcolm X has this quote that I'm going to paraphrase because I can't quite remember it. Um, But in the autobiography of Malcolm X, he speaks to um, dating white women and he says something to the effect of white people always date dark skinned black folks because they, it it almost seems like they want the real deal. So like as a very dark skinned woman, I've had white men be outrageous towards me. Like I remember sitting at lunch with my girlfriend one time Um, And it was in an outside area. And this white guy (laughs) walked by and screamed over at me, you are so fucking beautiful. While I was like sitting at lunch (laughs) and my (laughs) girlfriend at the time just turned or my she's still one of my best friends. But my best friend turned to me and rolled her eyes and just said, white men fucking love you. (laughs) But it wasn't so like weird. a real authentic yeah. right. connection. It was right. just like this. It was about your blackness. It was about my blackness. It was about my sexuality. Yeah. And not respecting my womanhood enough to yeah. like interact with me respectfully. Right. It was always just like fetishization. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're not enough of a person in his mind to like. Not scream at me outside <laughs> while I'm eating lunch. Yeah, that's ridiculous. It was so embarrassing. And other people were around. And as a woman, people don't understand how, like, things like that are really embarrassing. They think that you should appreciate being told that you're beautiful at any <laughs> time, right, in yeah. any capacity. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was really embarrassing and uncomfortable. This, this amazing artifact of misogyny. that You don't, you like, you didn't enjoy that? Mm-hmm. You didn't enjoy me screaming what's, at you what's while you were enjoying brunch? <laughs> <laughs> so 
something's wrong with you. Yeah. Do you feel like the way that you're seen has influenced at all the way that you see yourself or the way that you behave? Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. The way I navigate rooms depending upon how many black people are there, depending on how many white people are there, depending upon if it's white men or white women, definitely causes me to shift in certain ways. Hmm. Like, I know that I can always charm a white man because on the inside, he really is fetishizing me. Mm. So I feel like I get around better in rooms with white men than mm. I do white women all the time. So now that you're dating again, what does that look like? What is your <sighs> date? What is date in general? So terrible. I mean, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I might just let this episode be really long. <laughs> I think it should be. I think that's fine. Yeah. We're saying a lot of good stuff. So it's funny. My dating life right now looks like dating everybody that I dated in my early 20s before I got with my boyfriend. So I just literally called everybody back up like, <laughs> are you married yet? <laughs> so I've literally Beth is only... like dusting off her Rolodex. <laughs> <laughs> going uh, into okay. my old flip phone. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's what dating has looked like for me now. But I've told myself, come January 2020, I have to take it seriously again. Um, but it's funny, my one of my best friends just moved back and t- back to the area. Um, and we spend Wednesdays, every Wednesday together. Mm-hmm. And she keeps saying, you need to stop playing around. You know you're going to marry a white man. <gasps> and for some reason, that makes me cringe. Uh-huh. It doesn't make me cringe because I think there's something wrong with interracial marriages, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think there's something wrong with that. I, th- It makes me cringe because I can't imagine the discomfort that may come with that. So recently, I went to a conference Um, that was an anti-racism conference from the perspective, uh, from the faith perspective. Hmm. Um, And there was a woman there. She's a black woman. And she was there with her white husband. Mm -hmm. And we did this activity in which white people were asked what they like about being white. Mm, And black mm -hmm. people were asked what they like about being black. And of course, white people clammed up immediately, right? I would. But the black woman's husband got white husband got stirred up and as we were like coming to that conclusion he blurts out all of a sudden well this was a setup right and all (laughs) us black people in the room are looking at her like is this your king is this your king and that's what i think of right like i wouldn't want a partner you're always going to be embarrassed by your partner probably but like i wouldn't want a partner that embarrassed me in that way. Mm-hmm. I yeah. wouldn't want to have to explain myself at home. Totally. And that's why I'm so grateful that I married an Asian woman. <laughs> <laughs> because, There's uh, experiences that you can't even explain. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, I don't want to go home and keep and have to explain. Right. You know, I, I want to. having the conference. Uh, yeah. yeah. As I, the educator. Right. As the educator. Yes. Like, that's not. I want to. I want to be able to be comfortable Mm -hmm. and have somebody that I can relate to. Mm -hmm. And again, um, like you were saying, nothing wrong with interracial marriage. We're not – we haven't gone so, like, anti-racist that we've come around to being racist. (laughs) We haven't made that full circle. And yet, like, we have left this question mark on it, right? Like, it's difficult. It's difficult. mm -hmm. And if you're somebody that's in an interracial marriage and you're not only navigating your faith – but also like anti-racism and race, especially if you have kids, right? Yeah, like that, sure, that yeah. really adds an element mm-hmm. because now neither one of you can relate to this kid's experience. Mm-hmm. So if you have that experience, we would love your perspective yeah, we would. on this episode. We would. And yeah. I'll give you the uh, information to reach out to us at the at the end of the episode. Yeah. 
But yeah, that would that's a really difficult thing. And that's what every time she says it, I make this stupid ass face because I'm <laughs> like, that sounds really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the last thing that we like to do is talk about what we're into this week. Uh, Bethany, you want to kick us off? I totally forgot that this was a part of our show. And okay. I have not thought of anything that I'm into. Okay. Okay. Chris? Um, I... From a from a friend of ours, I heard about um, a podcast that I checked out, Jamar Tisby's Footnotes. Mm-hmm. Um, Jamar Tisby is an author of a, a book that we've we've all read. So I listened to a couple of his episodes, and Jamar Tisby is like he's the polished version of what we're doing. <laughs> um, he's he talks a lot about the news from, and he breaks it down with like research and from the perspective of a black man who's a Christian. Um, and is willing to do the research to really bring a grounded perspective. Mm-hmm. You wrote which, The Color of Compromise. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that's one of the things I'm into. I've also been watching um, Watchmen. Okay. Um, so good. I know. So good. Yeah. Um, and yeah, really came out of like – came out of like left field in like popular television in in that like it centers on a, a black woman in Tulsa like it it tells the story of um of black wall street and of the destruction of that that movement mm-hmm. um and and centers that um in the story yeah. um about superheroes yeah it's so cool mm-hmm. um so what I am into this week is um, I just got back from vacation where we went to Japan. Uh, for forever. Yeah, yeah we were there that for was a, ridiculous. A, a little bit. And um, I am into Japanese toilets. <laughs> All right. I know this is not an original. This, I'm not a, I, this, I know this is not an original thought. Other people have sung the praises of Japanese toilets. But Japanese toilets are so good that they make me angry at America. All right, so the the toilet. What does it do, Andrew? The seat. The seat is warm. Um, they they lift up when you walk in. There is a built-in bidet. They're self-cleaning. They close themselves when you leave. the The whole mechanism for flushing and and, and everything is on the wall, so you never have to touch the toilet except on the on the heated part where you sit down. Mm-hmm. It's like. Compared to Japanese toilets, we're just shitting in buckets. <laughs> and it makes me mad. Because... We deserve better. Our we, asses deserve yeah, better. We really do. It makes me so angry that Americans... And I, I can't... I, obviously, I am an American. We are satisfied so often with bad things. Like, why are our toilets not as advanced <laughs> why do we not have a high-speed train why is our health insurance so shitty mm-hmm. like i just every time you i went s- down like a yeah. rabbit hole yeah you know it's amazing like starting you look with at, the toilet yeah exactly it makes you like it makes you question the whole system <laughs> it makes me think of dr king's last speech or one of his last speeches jesus it- Christ, when he is talking about when he's talking about uh the war on vietnam uh-huh and he says something like, we were making all this progress, and for a shining moment, I thought that we were going to make it, like the, all this racial progress, all this economic progress for the mm-hmm. poor. But then the war happened, and he says, like a demonic suction tube that just sucked up everything mm-hmm. that we thought we were going to mm-hmm. do. And mm-hmm. now, like, th- that's where this country is at. And I think about how, like, 
50 cents out of every dollar goes to the military. Mm-hmm. And where we are in the United States in 2019 um, – our asses could be warm. Our asses could be warm is what I'm saying. <laughs> Things could be better. <laughs> and we're satisfied be with so little, yeah. you know? Like, we could we could be on these toilets. <laughs> I think this is a hilarious way that you came to this conclusion, but what you're saying so makes sense. Yeah. Oh. <sighs> I, it, I thought of something, by the way. Cool. What are you into, Bethany? So I am really into Michelle Obama and the Obamas this week, and I hate liking politicians i try really hard not to not to like politicians because Mm -hmm. i feel like um it's just a facade and i understand that being a politician is a performance just like beyonce performs but i am really into michelle obama i'm like convinced she's authentic um so i read her book well i listened to her audio book uh becoming a few months ago and i recently uh, started listening to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. It's a podcast, and okay, yeah. I really love Conan O'Brien. I think he's hilarious. I've been watching Conan O'Brien since I was maybe 10 or 11. Yeah. Um, but uh, the episode of Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend uh, with Michelle Obama is so good because she talks about something that I often talk about in the work that I'm doing, that children just need to see something to be able to envision themselves doing the same thing. They just Mm. need exposure. They just need to see that it's possible. And that's not the end of it, right? Michael Harriet of um, The Root did a really good article (laughs) calling Mike Buttigieg. Is that what his name is? Pete Buttigieg? Mayor Pete? Pete. Pete Buttigieg, um, a lying motherfucker. I like the way you say his name. Buttigieg. Buttigieg. But he does a really, he recently wrote a really good article um, calling him a lying motherfucker because he says that black kids just need to see it. And he totally doesn't address the systemic issues that keep black kids from being able to do it. So I say all that to say I fully understand that that's not the beginning and end of things. But I do think the first time I voted, I voted for a black family in the White House. And that will forever really affect me Mm -hmm. and being able to see that as a possibility and even the hope of that has really affected the way i navigate the world Mm -hmm. so i i can't lie i really like the obamas i was in a historically black college when Uh we got our first black president jeezy had come out with a song saying my president is black my lambo's blue Uh i have a little I have a little attachment to the Obamas. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what I'm into, Michelle Obama this nice. week. Nice. <laughs> All right. Uh, special thanks to Joe Mahoney, our technical director, and also to Luke Bartolomeo, our communications manager. And Jared Selby does our theme song. And I just want to shout out some of the countries that have been listening to us. So we see you in Canada. We see you Buenos Aires. Uh, Arge- I just be saying stuff whatever way I feel like. Buenos Aires. Okay. Argentina. Um, Seattle, Washington, Warrington, North Carolina, Salem, Oregon. We see you. Stop playing with us. Let us know that you're listening to us. Let us know how you're navigating race and faith in your community. So email us at circlemobilizing at gmail.com. And we'll maybe even read your letter during our Speak Up segment. Speak up! (laughs) So with that being said, stay black, Little Mermaid.